This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Sonia Faruqi had spent her entire life preparing for a career on Wall Street. She grew up fascinated by the acquisition and accumulation of nice possessions. She studied government and economics at Dartmouth College, and she landed a prize job out of college as a consultant at a Wall Street investment bank. She was living her dream. When the Great Recession of 2008 hit and Faruqi was laid off, she took a break to consider her career options and her next moves. And as luck would have it, she found herself volunteering for a couple of weeks on an organic dairy farm in Canada. And that short stint changed everything. Fast forward seven years and Faruqi is now an investigative journalist of our broken system of animal agriculture. Her book, Project Animal Farm, documents her travels and her experiences at a variety of farms, from large industrial factory farms in the U.S. to small organic operations to overseas animal production facilities of various types and sizes. The book is also a personal memoir of what she discovered, how it affected her, how she changed. It's really a story, it's a hero's journey. It's a story of someone with tremendous gifts, and you can see her gifts from a very young age, of analysis, of making sense of economics, of large systems, of, of how to rationalize broken systems, and how when she allowed herself to move from the very narrow world of Wall Street into a much bigger world, how those gifts really carried her to a place where she is fulfilled and really doing great work in the world. The book is not a, a work of vegan activism. It's a work of investigative journalism. And regardless of how you feel about eating animals, the stuff in here is stuff you'll want to know if you want to be healthy and if you want to live on a healthy planet. So without further ado, Sonia Faruqi, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Howard. I'm excited to be here. So your book is called Project Animal Farm. It has just come out in July of 2015. And I have to say, as, as, we, as we spoke about before we started the recorder, this was a hard book for me to start. Um, it wasn't a hard book for me to get into and finish. But you know, it's like going running in the rain or something. There, there was definitely um, some fear on my part in, in getting into the topic. You talk about um, you know, an accidental journey into the secret world of farming and the truth about our food. And I found myself, despite all my years of food education and food consulting and food activism, I didn't really want to know the truth and I wasn't sure if I could handle it. So I really want to, I want to begin by congratulating you on putting together a book that is so accessible and so humane and, and actually quite interesting and entertaining. Also, I want to begin by just thanking you for that. Thank you. I'm glad you liked it. So let's, let's start with your story, you know, how you, you, you have a kind of unlikely journey into becoming a muckraking, muckraking reporter, uh, journalist, um, exploring our, the underbelly of our food system. Talk about how you, you know, how you came to this place. I came to it unexpectedly. I went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, where I studied economics and government. After that, like many of my classmates, I found myself going to Wall Street. It's um, an area that was booming at that time, and I loved my work. I loved numbers. I loved the fast-paced lifestyle until the recession hit and I was let go like hundreds of thousands of people across New York City. At that time, I started thinking more about what I was interested in, what I wanted to do, and I found myself volunteering at an organic dairy farm expecting that the experience would be pastoral and picturesque. And, and this was just going to be sort of a, a vacation from, from New York, just sort of a chance to clear your head, right? Yes. This was um, my idea of a vacation, of doing something different, of uh, rural 
adventure in a way. Now, you, you, you write uh, about your, your childhood and your basic personality in a way that's, you know, that's quite engaging and um, I think self-deprecating as you look back uh, on, on your younger self. You describe yourself as, as fairly materialistic. Um, how, how, did, how did you change just sort of let's before before we get into the, the the details of the story, how how do you look back on your on your pre project animal farm self and and see any 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 big changes in you? So I am very honest in Project Animal Farm about myself, about others, about the subjects, without leaving anything out, even if it um, makes me seem like a you know like a normal person with all my virtues and my vices and such. So I was more materialistic and it I was in my early 20s and I was part of a culture, an investment banking culture that is a very materialistic culture. Through Project Animal Farm, I visited and lived at farms around the world in eight countries. And it changed me in many ways. For one, it made me more informed. Um, and all of that information is found in the book. It made me more open-minded to different ways of life, to different opinions and to different values. And it also made me more culturally aware because I was um, living with so many different kinds of people and having very fascinating and interesting conversations with them. Hmm. So, I, and, and that's the reason I asked that early on is that, that I found that happening to myself. Um, to a certain extent, I found myself identifying with your identification with kind of a Western materialist culture in which, yeah, we have to work hard, but there's things available for us just for, for the taking. And we don't think too hard about where they come from or about the underbelly of the system. So you, you went to an organic dairy farm for, you, you said you were going to stay for like two weeks, they, or you wanted to stay for a week, and they insisted you come for two. And things were not as you had pictured them in the postcard of your mind. Can you talk about what you found? Yes, I showed up at the farm in the evening and I had dinner with the farming couple. It was a middle-aged couple, Michael and Irene Miller. And tensions were obvious immediately between themselves, between me and themselves. They were unhappy with their marriage and they were unhappy with their farm specifically. The wife wanted to leave the farm. She didn't want to have anything to do with it for her own reasons. And the husband was trying his best to sell the farm. And I came in the middle of all of that by showing up. Um, so there was a lot of tension between myself and them and between themselves, especially. On the animal side of things, the cows were chained to stalls for two-thirds of the year. Two out of every three days of the year, they spent indoors chained to a stall that's uh, no wider than themselves, where they cannot even turn around. So it's um, a form of housing that's inhumane and that's unexpected, especially for organic. Hmm. So what was your what was your thought? Did you think this this was anomalous? This is just a I, I happened upon like the wrong family or what what like what what made you see that as the tip of an iceberg? It's not an anomalous experience. Most dairy cows in the US and Canada spend their entire lives indoors without ever stepping outside. So um, this is a very common sort of uh, setup. I guess what was anomalous is that at this farm, because it was organic, they stepped outside on 120 days of the year, one out of three days, whereas at a conventional farm, they don't step outside at all um, throughout their lives. So in that sense, organic is still better than conventional, but it's um, not 
better enough. It's not good enough compared to what we think. It's um, not pastoral for the most part. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Sorry. It's okay. Did I miss the second part of the question, Howard? Um, well, I was wondering what you, what made you want to look further? You see, you had, you had, you know, I've often gone on vacations and the vacations weren't perfect. And then I come home and go back to my life. You kept digging. What, what was, what was the, the itch that you were trying to scratch by, by continuing and not just saying, well, okay, next time I'll, you know, I'll go snorkeling in Trinidad or something. <laughs> Sure. So at this farmer's birthday party, I met another farmer. He was an egg factory farmer called Brick Roberts. And we got along very well. We're incredibly different people. Um, and yet we spoke very easily. And I went to his egg factory farm, upon which I said, can I come stay with you for a bit? Because I wanted to learn more about it. So in an egg factory farm, the hens are in cages stacked up to the ceiling. And it's a form of housing that's not only inhumane, but very contradictory to animal nature and to common sense in some ways. So I wanted to understand it. And once I came to live with him, I became part of this whole community. And I visited a pig factory farm. I visited a turkey factory farm, a chicken farm as well. So if I hadn't gone to the birthday party, if I hadn't met Rick Roberts and stayed with his family, there, I wouldn't have gone further. But in a way, it was um, the people I met and the places I was seeing that were both um, increasing my curiosity and my desire to learn more. Mm. So at a certain point, it's, your story started reminding me of a kind of hero's journey where, you know, the, there's a call to adventure. And very often it's a call that we don't want to listen to or we run away from. But at a certain point, there's, there's, a, there's a point of no return where you sort of jump in to this strange world and you have to make your way as best you can and, and you know, follow your quest and return with something to heal the community. Was there a point at which you felt you were all in, that this is, this is now gone from curiosity and serendipity to something driven by your own will? That moment for me occurred at the end of chapter five of Project Animal Farm. I ended my stay with the Brick Roberts, with Brick Roberts and his family. And I had seen lots of problems. I had seen the animal welfare issues. I had seen um, more broadly health and sustainability issues as well. And from my perspective, there's why bother looking at the problem if we're not going to find a solution? And so after I, after I left that community, I became um, invested personally and driven by the idea of finding a solution. And that's what propelled me on to other farms in other countries. Mm. So I love you. You, said you, you, you quietly purchased a pair of secondhand farm coveralls. So was, that was sort of the the new your your, your suit of armor in a sense in, in your in this new quest. Yes, it was, a, kind of, it, was a, it was a real change of identity. It doesn't seem like the sort of thing you would have dreamed about wearing as a young girl. I didn't know what farm coveralls were previously. I think um, many people don't. I mean, today most of us live in urban or suburban environments where we're completely removed from the food system. We're completely removed from farm animals. There's um, more chickens on the planet than there are human beings, and yet we almost never see a living chicken. Um, so I was a part of that until Project Animal Farm opened my eyes and um, led me to want to share what I was learning with others. Mm. So one of the one of the sort of themes that I kept, or I guess a 
a sort of an emotional connection I felt with you during the writing was all the times where you had to, for lack of a better word, lie to someone to to gain access or to allay suspicion. Um, and and I'm wonder I'm wondering what what that was like to sort of walk into these people's worlds um, under to some extent false pretenses. So I was honest about my name and my general identity, like where I went to school, where I live, my family, my siblings. So everything was true. But the one lie was I said in the second half of Project Animal Farm, I said to people that I'm an agricultural student. Earlier on, I was noticing that Nobody wants someone who's thinking of writing a book around. It's um, an industry that's very secretive, and it's not at all transparent. It's very challenging to obtain access. And so um, saying that I am an agricultural student helped me to obtain a level of access. And it was something that did... um, fit with my persona in a way that I love studies. I have been a student for most of my life. And in a sense, I was studying agriculture. I was studying it from multiple different perspectives, the business perspective, the economic perspective, the humane perspective, the environmental perspective. Um, So while I was not technically enrolled in a master's or a PhD program, to me, this was my own study and my own analysis of this very global and important subject of um, food issues. Mm. I think one of the things that possibly sort of made you trustworthy or endeared you to these people was that you you have a basic background, you have a very strong background in economics. And I think you're able to see their their situations from an economic perspective and to empathize with their struggles to make a living. Would you say that was that was sort of a common point in which you, you could you could connect with them? Yes, I did connect with them about the economic and the financial factors. Um, in my previous job, my work focused heavily on the numbers of companies. How are they doing financially? And with especially the executives in these companies, that background was very helpful, delving into the costs, into um, the long-term plans, into financial future of a company, um, into efficiencies. So it did really help me gain access to the industry from the economic perspective. So I know for that, when you're looking at things economically, there is a language and you talk a lot in the book about how people use language to distance themselves from certain aspects of reality. There's a, there's a language of commodity, of fungibility, uh, of, of inputs and outputs. When, when and how did the, the concept that these animals are sentient beings who are suffering um, enter your, your algorithm for agriculture and what it should be. Did that, did you come with that, you know, as, 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 as a vegetarian or how, how did that creep into your view of the world? So I've always recognized animals as being sentient beings. And I think most of us do recognize that anyone who's interacted with a cat or a dog or even seen um, any sort of squirrel or rabbit or any animal, we know that they're sentient beings. We know that they have certain desires. They have the desire to move at least. Um, The word animal shares a root with the word animation because it's animation, the desire and the ability to move that sets an animal apart from a plant. So I did know that animals are sentient, they are aware, they can feel pain, they can suffer. That said, I didn't know it from the farm context. 
there are just tens of billions of farm animals in the world and because we hardly ever see them although we technically know that they are sentient that doesn't cross our mind much and the implications of that sentience also don't cross our minds much and that's where i think project animal farm can create change by um, taking the reader with me to these farms talking to these farmers seeing the animals and developing ideas for how things can be better much better so, so one of my defense mechanisms when I see something just horrible in the world is I like to judge and blame the people that I see as responsible for it because that makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> um, but it was hard. Sure. It was hard to do that because the people that you're talking to are good people by and large. There's some. There's some exceptions. There were some people who are you know cruel and arguably you know psychotic. But, but by and large, the people who are um, running this system of unbelievable cruelty, uh, causing un uncountable, unmeasurable suffering, were good people. And if, so if you say that all of us understand that if we see a, even a squirrel or a rabbit or a cat and dog, that animals are sentient beings capable of suffering and with desires, what happened to these good people? to make them blind to that for, for the, the hundreds of thousands of lives in their care? That's a good question. So the irony is that this is a very inhumane industry run by people who in many ways are normal people. Um, so Project Animal, in Project Animal Farm, I've presented a balanced and honest view of the farms, the animals, the people. I found that it's not about good or evil. It's not black and white. The closer you are to something, the more you see that there are so many nuances and there are so many shades of gray. And that's very much how the agriculture and food industry is today. So the people who are factory farmers, they're also fathers, they're brothers, they uh, have their own personalities, a sense of humor, they have their own interests and hobbies, just like regular people. And because I came to befriend them and also stay with them, I was able to see their human side very closely and to appreciate it. So the question then is, why is the industry inhumane if the people are, for the most part, decent, normal people? The reason is that their opinions don't necessarily matter. They're cogs in this huge meat production complex, which is billions upon billions of dollars worth. They're often contract growers for companies and they don't have any say in how they're doing their job. So if it's a hot day, for instance, and they cannot just open the window, they really need to have permission for everything and they're following very strict guidelines about every single possible thing. Um, so they don't have much choice. And I've also noticed that there is interestingly, a psychological distance that they often keep. It's um, called cognitive dissonance, and it's um, a way to not reconcile reality in order to make life easier. So sometimes their terminology for animals might even refer to animals as things or objects, because that way you don't need to think of them as animals. Um, and they keep a significant distance between personal and professional life. So at home, the dogs, the farm dogs will be pampered and um, treated with a lot of love. And on the other hand, in the factory farm, animals such as pigs, which are just as sentient as dogs, are being treated in a completely different way. Um, 
So a lot of it is psychological. A lot of it relates to a lack of choice or definitely a perceived lack of choice also plays a role in it. Do you think there's a difference in the type of cognitive dissonance that goes on in the farmers and in, let's say, a suburban family in Canada or the U.S. who are good people, they're active in their community, they, they volunteer, they give money to charity, they teach their children to be, to be kind, and they go and they purchase a, you know, five or six pounds of chicken a week from a factory farm. Is there cognitive dissonance there as well, do you think? There is, I think. So cognitive dissonance is not a rare phenomenon. We use it to rationalize things. We use it because it makes us feel less guilty. It makes us feel better about ourselves and better about the world we live in. so part of it, so when a family goes shopping and buys, let's say, McNuggets or some factory farmed meat, they may be doing it partially because they don't know or they don't really know. So while they may know from a very um, sort of theoretical perspective, they don't really know what how that chicken was treated or um, what's in that meat, all the antibiotics and those things. So they don't really know and understand those things. I think that's also a large part of it. So while some of it is psychological, a lot of it is also just the basic fact that we don't know. I mean, I didn't know the details of any of this until Project Animal Farm. So, so sorry. How, yeah. So how did so I, I, you were a vegetarian beforehand? You did have a sense of, you know, relationship with animals and animal welfare, and you didn't know what is in this book. So what's has anything changed for you? Or you, have you changed your behavior, your personal behaviors? I know that you're you're now sort of a you know a, a, an activist, for lack of a better word. Um, but what cha- what changed for you? Did you find any of your own cognitive dissonances? forced to to reconcile one way or the other? What changed for me? So I did become vegetarian and I liked it for my health reasons and um, other reasons, but I didn't have the level of um, knowledge and I mean, I hadn't taken any classes on it. I hadn't read any books on it. Um, so while it was a decision that worked for me, I think um, sometimes people need a bigger impetus, like more information, more knowledge, more connection with the subject matter. So what changed for me, I think we discussed, I did change as a person overall and uh, my opinions on this topic evolved um, very significantly over the course of the book when I was um, learning that my own assumptions were sometimes false, for instance, about organic or about a range of the other issues in the book. Mm-hmm. So you find that you're, um, is it easier for you to 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 say no to things to uh, I'm not I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what I'm asking here but it see it felt like part of this was it was a an autobiography of courage of of being able to face more things being able to uh, to be truer to yourself to live more according to your values um, someone you know. Uh, your diet didn't change that much. It wasn't like you were a you know cheeseburger fiend beforehand. Um, but do you, you know? Do do you find that in other areas of your life you're more willing to look unflinchingly at the consequences of your actions? Yes, I do think I'm more willing to look unflinchingly at the courses of my actions um, in other areas as well. 
and for instance in the book I mentioned becoming more aware of the environment and our environmental footprint and that awareness ironically came to me from a factory farmer in the book who um, tries to reduce his waste and his landfill waste so I became interested in that topic just after he mentioned it because he was um, pretty vocal and opinionated about it. So that's one small example of looking into an area like the amount of waste there is unflinchingly. In terms of how I would describe Project Animal Farm, it's a work of investigative journalism and memoir both. So it's my true story, it's my international expedition into a very secretive industry and I'm the vehicle through which others see things and understand and learn. Um, so it's unique in that way in that it's using narrative and it's telling a story with a purpose. So it's tough to classify it as one area. I would classify it as two different things, as investigative journalism combined with memoir. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot in the book that I was sure was going to get me very upset. I'm sure that, you know, the descriptions of the living conditions of the culling of the dead animals of slaughterhouse was going to get to me. But the one thing that really, really got me deep, deep down, and that was a complete surprise to me was your description early on of artificial insemination. And I'm not exactly sure why I found that so awful. Um, but I'm curious whether whether you did too and whether you you wanted that reaction from me because it's not something I think about in terms of animal cruelty. I wasn't going for that reaction as such and it didn't have an extremely strong effect on me, frankly, but it was new to me and I think a part of it that might be um, troubling you or interesting you is the fact that it's extremely unnatural and in a sense it sounds like a sci-fi film gone wrong. Um, so let's talk about what artificial insemination is. Artificial insemination means um, a form of reproduction in which the semen is sort of injected in not injected, but inserted into the cow or the sow or turkey or even fish. And it's um, the process itself is uh, strange to watch and inhumane, but the longer aspect, the longer term aspect of it that I think is disturbing you. Um, and that is concerning is that it really limits genetics. I compared in Project Animal Farm to passing a swirling pod of genes through a needle pinhole. When, so artificial insemination today is controlled by immense global companies that are doing so much of this experimentation with um, mostly or if not completely short-term factors in place. They're focusing on profitability and cost efficiency and the milk production quantities, but they're neglecting to focus on animal welfare. They're not thinking, for instance, about body structure or leg strength or factors that really do determine animal welfare, but they're thinking mostly about profits and that's considered the be all end all. And so these cows are being created um, based on very short term considerations that are not healthy and that are not good for longevity. The in nature, the long-term survival of any species depends on genetic diversity, and that genetic diversity is 
disappearing very, very fast in agriculture and all the different kinds of farm animals we see today? Hmm. I think my, my intellectual brain, you know, sort of picked up on all that. But I think emotionally, it just felt so rude, like, like sort of cosmically rude as a species that we would be just have, have, have no manners, you know, as, as, as residents on this planet, that we would, that we would even conceive of doing that. And the descriptions of these men, you know, sticking their, their forearms into the animals. Um, It's, it's, it's almost like it it transcended for me, the, the objective negative results of, of um, genetic limitation and, uh, and breeding for short-term profit. Sure, I see what you mean. Um, artificial insemination and so many of the other topics in Project Animal Farm, there's so many different things about them, different angles that um, are equally concerning. So the experience of artificial insemination, the idea that this is now the common or even the only mode of reproduction that is being used among farm animals, it's um, startling and it, and it is concerning. Um, so what, one of the, the pieces that I've read that's had a huge impact on me and my thinking about food and animals, I think it's by, by a guy named John Berger, and it was in the 70s, and it was called Why Look at Animals? And he makes the point that however we treat animals in one generation, we tend to treat humans in the next generation. And I know you, you talk a little bit about the Mexican or Hispanic employees at, at some of the, um, the, the packaging and processing plants. Do you see um, echoes in the way we treat animals and the way humans are treating each other, especially in sort of unequal uh, socioeconomic status? So the mindset of um, these corporations can often be such that they view animals and workers as pretty much equal. Um, They're both very replaceable. They're um, both maximally exploitable. In the United States, a large proportion of the labor on farms is Mexican and um, Hispanic, and because the people don't speak English, and because some of them um, may not be legal or may not know their rights, they are easy to exploit, and companies can get away with paying them even less than minimum wage for work that often is difficult and dangerous and might leave them. Um, injured. We see this especially in slaughter, where the workers, I think about um, only 40% of them have a high school degree and they're paid very little while the rate of injury is um, significant. About a quarter of them can end up with minor or major injuries from damage to their backs, to wrists, to a cut, or some even an amputation. Um, so they are, I guess, workers and animals are viewed similarly in that way by these companies. They're just viewed as extremely replaceable. Hmm. So, um, sorry, I've, I'm looking at my my notes of questions. There's so ma- there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, you 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 write that in the United States and Canada, at least, there are there are no laws that distinguish a pig from a table. That both have four legs and are seen as property. And if you own it, you can do whatever you want. Uh, to it, what did you what did you find in other places, not U.S. and Canada, that you know that, that that's different that we might 
reach to and say, well, there's a, there's a different way of being civilized here? Europe is making good progress. For instance, in Europe, animal welfare is considered legally to be on an equal footing with other societal principles like gender equality, like healthcare, like education. And when making their laws, countries are legally required to pay attention to animal welfare. So it's Europe shows that it is possible to have um, a focus on animal welfare while also having food systems and while also um, continuing to farm. So um, Europe has banned some practices that are very common in North America. Most egg-laying hens in North America, more than 95% of egg-laying hens are kept in tiny cages. Europe has outlawed that. So across the European Union, you're no longer allowed to keep hens in tiny cages or else you're punished for it. Um, and they've taken important steps in other areas as well with sows, with veal calves, and they've taken decisive action. Governments have, and consumers are also showing a lot of interest in these subjects. So Europe, I think, does offer a good role model. It shows that change is possible. Um, in the United States, in contrast, most of the legislation that has occurred has been on a state level rather than a federal level. Um, so some states have been outlawing cages. But what we really need is federal action, national laws um, that set standards, at least minimum standards for what is and what is not acceptable. So, but you, you write about laws and, for example, the laws of organic. Um, typically, they're, they're followed in a way that you're just above the threshold. So, you're, so the goal in, in following a law or a regulation is to spend as little as possible and to just meet the obligation, as opposed to a principle like animal welfare, which would require a whole different way, it would turn the whole thing on its head if, if your principal concern was, was ethical and relational r rather than legal. In, in Europe, do you have a sense that it's, they just have more stringent laws so that there's some level of protection or is it a different ethos? I think it's also a different ethos. I've spent a couple of months in Europe when I was a student at Dartmouth. I did a study abroad program in France in the city of Toulouse. And I was surprised by the numbers of farmers markets. It's really remarkable how many farmers markets there are in France and throughout Europe. And there were so many that I was driven to write a paper about them. A lot of people regularly go shopping at farmers markets. They're part of the culture. And that's the relationship. People don't want to necessarily go to a huge store where everything is anonymous and transported huge distances and um, you don't know anything about it. They want to have a connection. They want to meet the farmers to ask them questions. So I did notice that there is a different relationship um, when we're talking about animals and the relationship to food and eating in general. So suppose somebody doesn't really care about animals or not enough to, you know, they, they're, they're not ready to face the cognitive dissonance knowing that the food they're eating is, is, is directly contributing to these, um, you know, factory farms and slaughterhouses. And they're just sort of self-interested in their own health, in the health of their family, in their own economic well-being. Are there arguments for changing the system based totally on self-interest? 
there are arguments for that as well. And when we're talking about health, um, there's so many issues with factory farmed meat. The animals are often raised on antibiotics. Antibiotics are mixed into their feed such that every time they're eating, they're consuming antibiotics. Um, and having such a high amount of antibiotics leads to antibiotic resistance, where mutant bacteria develop that are um, immune to these antibiotics. A lot of the same bacterial issues faced by animals are also faced by humans. For instance, I've seen penicillin used in farms. At a pig factory farm I visited, the farmer was injecting the sows with penicillin. Now, penicillin is an extremely important antibiotic also for humans. It's um, a very signature, iconic antibiotic that's played a huge role in human well-being to date, but because of its overuse in humans, but also very significantly in agriculture, its um, effectiveness is undermined. So this is the case with a lot of antibiotics that are being used today. Um, Antibiotics are extremely important in human medicine. We rely on them for a lot of things. And having undermined effectiveness is a scenario that is very concerning. More than 70% of antibiotics today in the United States are not used by people, but are actually used in farm animals. That's uh, one aspect of health. There are other aspects as well. For instance, salmonella. Eggs that come from cages are far more likely to be infected with salmonella than eggs that are from free-range or organic hens. If we look at other areas too, for instance, flu viruses. Um, a lot of the farmers I spoke with around the world had concerns about bird flu. It's um, one of the strongest concerns in the industry today because of how likely it is and how damaging it can be. Um, because of the birds today, the chickens today are very... Um, weak and immune resistant and are genetically very, very alike. Such that if there is a flu virus and because of the size of these factory farms and the global scale of them, a virus can both start and spread like wildfire. Um, so flu viruses are even more dangerous than bacterial issues, I find, because we don't understand them. They, we cannot just apply antibiotics, uh, and they mutate and change rapidly. The swine flu of 2009 is estimated to have killed a couple hundred thousand people all around the world. Um, so when we're talking about these diseases, the scale and the potential catastrophic effect is very, very significant. And so even if someone's interested only in their own health and um, are uninterested in animals or the environment or the world outside of um, the immediate self, and even then, we do have to think about how we eat for our own health, for our own direct well-being. Mm -hmm. So in, in the book, you, um, you talk about sort of eight solutions, and I'm looking at page three, 332. Um, it'd be useful to kind of go, go through them. Each, each one sort of gets some mention or... or um, you know, some support in in the various stories, but it was very helpful for me to hear kind of the the big picture recap. Um, 
left. So one, one of the first one you talk about is large scale pastoral farms. Uh, so first of all, what's the difference between a pastoral farm and a, a factory farm or a industrial farm? They're completely different. Um, pastoral farm relies on natural elements like sunshine, like grass, and the animals are kept outdoors um, for most or all of their lives. An industrial farm, in contrast, is a factory. It can be compared to a shed. It can be compared to a warehouse. And animals are kept indoors in close, confined, and very crowded quarters, um, usually in extreme numbers. And they're very different in every way. When you go to a pastoral farm, it's beautiful. When you go to an industrial farm, you want to leave immediately the smell itself is that challenging um, so they're entirely different mind mindsets and um, methods of farming so in other words the, the the pastoral farm is what's on all the packaging and, and the the industrial farm is is gen, is typically the reality for i think you said what 95 percent of of the the meat eggs and dairy produced in this country Yes, that's a good way to put it. Even the most industrial of operations will have a pretty picture of grass on the label often. So, but you, you don't just talk about pastoral farms, but the idea of large scale. And that feels a little counterintuitive to me that I would want, you know, the local, the, my meat, if I ate meat, to be produced by a neighbor with, you know, five chickens, eight cows, two goats and a pig. And, you know, I could really keep an eye on things and it would be small. Why do you say large scale in particular is a solution? Scale today is we're seeing it in all industries and it helps reduce costs and increase efficiency. So let me give the background on this to begin with. Previously, farms were small pastoral. They, it was the sort of farm you just described with um, a small flock of chickens, uh, maybe a couple of cows, a couple of pigs, and people lived in villages. And a lot, many families, if not uh, all families, would have their own little um, small menagerie of animals. Today we live in a world where that's no longer possible or even wanted. We live in a world where most of us are urban or suburban and becoming more so with time. We're working in jobs that are demanding and we don't have the time or the inclination and we've to some extent lost the skills that would be required to have our own little small pastoral farm. Now, large industrial is what the world has transitioned to, where the meat comes from giant factories. Large pastoral is it retains the economies of scale and it retains the low costs of large industrial because of the scale, but it's also pastoral. So it also retains the flavors of the past of um, having a humane farm where animals are outdoors and are living good natural lives. So it's based on what's feasible today, based on what consumers are willing to pay for and based on what producers are willing to do, large pastoral is a very good option. It's just as humane as small pastoral um, or even more so in some ways because the farmer does have experience and it does have the potential to really change things, to have a form of farming that is economic and also ethical and environmental. Hmm. Do you get any um, feedback or, or, or pushback from, let's say, people in the animal welfare or animal rights community who feel like saying that there's any form of animal agriculture that's okay is, 
is tantamount to heresy, that, that we shouldn't be eating animals at all. And I'm wondering if you, if you hear that, and, and what's your response? So even if we are not in, eating animals at all, I, I mean, let's say that suddenly the world were to go vegan in maybe even as little as 10 years. Even in that time, the welfare of the animals is extremely important, um, how they're being treated. And unless we're envisioning a completely vegan world anytime soon, we do need to find solutions for animals that are effective today, effective immediately, that can be implemented um, soon. So um, people can say what they'd like, but based on the facts, based on my observations and conversations and my visits to more than 60 farms in eight countries, large pastoral is an idea that is possible. I've seen it in practice. And the farms are just as good as any animal sanctuary there would be out there. Um, I think framing it as all or nothing or fully vegan versus not vegan is a harmful approach because everyone can do something and should do something. Um, so sometimes I'm asked, are you recommending that people be vegetarian slash vegan or are you recommending that they reduce their meat consumption and there isn't a dichotomy if two people reduce their meat consumption by half that's equal in its effect to one of the one of them being vegetarian anyway um, so I think these factors are important to keep in mind it's um, not black or white and we're looking at solutions that are not necessarily fully idealistic or utopian, but that are practical and that are implementable while also being original. Mm. That was, that's a bit hard for me, especially after reading the book. I really wanted a utopian solution, and I really wanted to read that like 10 of the people you wrote about have like quit farming and are now like, you know painting butterflies and growing lavender and and fostering three-legged pigs <laughs> like some some part of me and I think a lot of people is it's like it's we really have a romantic notion about this and we want and we want this to be free from complexity from economic complexity from regulatory complexity from issues of hunger and class and race and and distribution, but it's not. It's a it's a very complicated issue um, that, that uh, I think does, as you say, require a multi-pronged approach. Yes, there, romanticism can be fine in some areas, but I mean, how often have you seen utopian solutions for anything in the world? I've never seen such utopian solutions and um, I don't think the reader expects it as such. Um, seeing how complex the issue is, I have delved into all the complexity instead of trying to ignore it or work around it and I have clarified a lot of the complexity and explained the complexity to readers in Project Animal Farm. That said, the complexity still exists. It's just um, easier to understand and to absorb and to work with. The question is, what, what can we do? As, as we're not um, farmers necessarily, we're not um, politicos, as ordinary people, how can we contribute to solutions? We can start thinking about how we're eating and aligning our values to our habits. We can reduce our meat consumption. Everyone can reduce meat consumption slightly or significantly, and it really does have a big effect on creating the sort of world that we want to live in. And if 
people are continuing to eat meat, milk, or eggs, then it is important to think about where they're coming from and to make sure that the places that we're buying them from are humane. Um, this can be done by paying attention to labels. I do offer a guide to labels in Project Animal Farm. This can be done also by um, going to places of purchase that have already put some thought into their suppliers. So for instance, farmers markets or health food stores or certain stores do have criteria by which they're um, deciding which suppliers to have and not have and that does allow us um, a sort of first filter and then we can feel more confident buying from there. So I do think it's important to modify our eating habits and our buying habits and that really comes down to thinking more about how we're eating. In Project Animal Farm, I'm not telling people what to think as such. I'm urging the idea that we should be thinking about this because it is a very important subject to think about. Awesome. And I think that, uh, you know, what, one of the most important things that we need in, this, in the system is transparency. And I think your, your book has, yes. has done a great deal. You know, I think it was Paul McCartney who said if slaughterhouses had wall, glass walls, everyone would be vegetarian. I think your, your, your book and your uh, advocacy is helping to create some transparency so that people can naturally move towards um, ways of consuming that are more in line with their values. So given that, I'm wondering, what's, what, what are you up to now? What's next for you? And how, if people want to stay in touch, what should they do aside from buying a copy of Project Animal Farm? Right. There are lots of ways to stay in touch. You can find me on my website at www.soniafaruki.com. I have a blog and there are lots of photos and there are also free excerpts from Project Animal Farm on my website. Um, I'm on Twitter and Facebook as well, which I update frequently with new information the Twitter handle is at Sonia underscore Faruqi. I've been doing a book tour and um, I keep all of that information on my website and my online pages. Um, I'm also happy to answer any questions or listen to thoughts anytime via my website. Great. Uh, so I'll, I'll include all those in the show notes for people who are listening to this. If you go to plantyourself.com and just search for Sonia, S-O-N-I-A, you'll find all those links. Uh, one last question, if you had the time. Sure. I'm curious if you've shown this book to any of the people that, any of the farmers that you, that you met with um, who didn't know you were going to write this book, and if so, what their reactions have been. I showed it to the farmer in chapter six. Um, it's a large pastoral farm, and that's where I developed the seed of the idea of large pastoral. He's been he and his family have been very supportive of the book and interested in it as well. Great, Is it, but the other people uh, you haven't shown. I have not shown it. No. Wow. That'd be an interesting follow-up. <laughs> yeah. Maybe your next book. So, Sonia Faruqi, thank you so much, first of all, for taking the hour to talk with me and for taking the four or five years to put this story out into the world. I'm hoping it will be um, a blessing for, for our planet and for all sentient beings. So thank you so much. Thank you, too. Be well. You, too. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sonia Faruqi. Your action step is to go get a copy of Project Animal Farm and read it and share it with other people. See what they think, see what you think. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to help it grow, one of the best things you can do is go to iTunes and leave a review, leave some stars, and share it. Share this episode and any other episodes you think would be useful to friends and family on social media. That helps people find it who may be looking for this kind of information but don't know that they are. 
There's a couple of reports for you on plantyourself.com. One of them is the oatmeal report, which is, I found, the easiest way to tackle the problem of breakfast. And if you can ha have breakfast handled, you've got basically one-third of your plant-based life under control. So you can find that at plantyourself.com oatmeal. The second is called Sometimes Say Never, and it deals with the question of when do you say never again to a food or a behavior, something that has been a problem, but maybe, maybe you should just have to do it in moderation. Maybe you should just eat that dark chocolate in moderation. Maybe you should just gamble in moderation. But sometimes you need to say never. And this report looks at when to say never, when it's a good idea, when it's a bad idea, and specifically, with regard to food, as opposed to various other types of problem behaviors. The garden's producing pretty well, giving us lots of tomatoes and cucumbers. Blueberries have stopped, and I managed to kill a couple of pawpaw trees through neglect. I let the weeds get so high I couldn't even see them to water, so bad on me. I'll try again next season. I wish wherever you are that you're getting enough rain, enough sun, and enough love. So with that, be well, my friends.